This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. When I say radioactive wildlife, I'll bet your brain goes to Chernobyl's wolves, which, believe it or not, despite the odds, are still thriving at the site of the nuclear disaster. Or maybe you've heard of the rat snakes in Fukushima that pick up radioactive contamination as they slither around. Well, let's add two more to that list of radioactive critters, turtles and wild boar. Yes, the hairy pigs. They're the subjects of two new studies that looked at radioactivity in wildlife and mapped out where it came from. Joining me are Dr. Siler Conrad, archaeologist at Pacific Northwest National Lab in Richland, Washington, who worked on the turtle study, and Dr. George Steinhauser, professor of applied radiochemistry at the Vienna University of Technology in Vienna, Austria, who looked at boar. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Thank you for having us. Nice to have you. Okay, then let's start with your study about wild boars. Why choose them? Because they're famous, actually. So ever since Chernobyl, they've been, they've been studied quite intensely in Europe. So we're not talking about Chernobyl or the, the vicinity of Chernobyl. We're talking about Central Europe. So Germany, Austria, Switzerland, these countries. And they have been known to be radioactive. So they, they are known to accumulate radioactive cesium. But what is even more interesting than just the sole accumulation, they basically they violate the law of physical decay because they keep more radioactive than they should be from a physical perspective. So the half-life of cesium-137 is 30 years. And when we look at wild hog meat or their flesh, it keeps radioactive at levels that should no longer be allowed, should not be permitted by the half-life. So they keep more and more radioactive than they should be, and we don't observe the half-life that we should observe. So that's fascinating. Why is that? Well, we tried to find it out, and we're still not fully there, but we, we have now published a paper that kind of shed some light on, on, onto the whole story. We looked into the isotopic composition of that cesium. So until now, basically, or until like two weeks ago, everybody only looked at the cesium-137. And that's, of course, a very prominent fission product, radioactive. And uh, now we added another isotope that has not been observed previously in, in that system, and that's the cesium-135. And with those two, we can establish an isotopic fingerprint, and it can tell us where does the cesium come from. Until a few years ago, everybody thought, well, it must be all Chernobyl, or basically almost everything must be from Chernobyl, because that's the prime source of radioactivity in Europe. But it turned out in our study that we found the fingerprint of nuclear weapons fallout. And that is very prominent, actually, in wild hogs. So uh, they keep their radioactivity from 60 years ago. Wow. You must have been surprised by oh, that. Oh, yeah. Basically, very much. We were very much surprised. Actually, when my PhD student first came to me and, and told me the results of his first measurements, uh, he had a he had a sad face, a frowny face, basically, and said something went wrong. The analysis wasn't correct because it it looked like uh, the result must be must be often the the analysis must be wrong, but in fact the the fingerprint was so so much dominated by the nuclear weapons fallout, uh, the analysis was correct, but just our view of the world wasn't there yet. That that is really fascinating. Why why is it just the boars that are radioactive and not the other animals? We can only speculate about that, but I think it is because they are the only anima animals that get their food sources from underground. 
especially in winter when it's cold and when, when food on the surface is scarce, then they have to dig. And so they dig down to find those truffles, not our human truffles, but these deer truffles. And they are known to be hyper accumulators of radioactive cesium. And since the cesium moves very slowly through soil, it migrates very, very slowly, only, only tiny fractions of an inch per year, the Chernobyl cesium has not arrived there yet. So these mushrooms, they still accumulate the old cesium from the 1960s. Uh, and the 1986 Chernobyl cesium has not even arrived there, at least not at, at its full extent. That's amazing. So what does this tell you then about how radioactive materials move around the world? Well, nature doesn't forget, right? Uh, so once a radionuclide has been released into the environment, of course, in, in, in many environmental compartments, we, we lose sight of, uh, of this radioactivity after a while. So we're no longer worried about, about our apples or plums or whatever vegetables being contaminated from Chernobyl because the radioactivity or those radioactive atoms, those, those ions, they are, they're immobilized in soil. They are washed out. So they just move elsewhere and, and our vegetables and our, our apple trees can no longer take them up. But that doesn't mean that the season is gone. It's just elsewhere. And we found this elsewhere is it's all in the wild boar. That's amazing. Siler, let's move to your study about the uranium in turtle shells. Why turtles? <laughs> yeah, that uh, uh, was something that we were really interested in because we wanted to understand ways in which we could establish long-term records of contamination, essentially over the 20th century, when all of these activities were, were occurring, especially above-ground nuclear testing. And we wanted to find a way to measure those records accurately in real time when those events occurred. And so you can imagine that something like a tree ring, that, that is a, a really useful environmental uh, kind of sink because it's able to capture different information within the rings and you can backtrack and, and essentially establish these chronological records through time. But radioactive and essentially radionuclides uh, like uranium, it migrates within tree ring layers. And so you might see uranium signals from nuclear events that are occurring prior to when they should have. And, and you can think of 1945 as essentially the onset of this. And in some studies, we, we know that uranium moves between tree rings. And so it's not entirely a, a useful type of sample to look at these long-term records over time. But we know that turtles, and I mean turtles and tortoises and sea turtles, they grow that colorful material on the back of their shells. It's called scoop keratin. And it's a tissue that's quite similar to human fingernails, for example. And they grow that material in sequential layers over time. And so we were able to find turtles that inhabited areas where past nuclear testing occurred or other types of nuclear activity, and then sequentially analyze and, and pick up signals, very, very small signals of nuclear activities in the landscape from these turtle shells. It was really quite remarkable. We, we think of them as walking tree rings, as an example. Turtle rings. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know where to go look for the... The rings on the turtles. Do you, do you have special places you look for? Yep. You know, different turtles grow that scoot keratin in different ways. And we spent a lot of time with each of the different types of turtles that we were studying, actually working out the growth characteristics of that 
that shell scoop keratin to understand, okay, we know that we have a layer that was formed at this time. And so we can sample that layer and, and get a picture to essentially this calendar year. And so we spent a lot of time working out the essentially the mechanics and the growth characteristics of, of scoop keratin for different turtles from these different locations where nuclear events occurred. Hmm. How does the uranium end up in the turtles in the first place? Ah, uh, yeah. It's a really interesting process. And as George was just mentioning, I think there's a there's a fun connection here between uh, sort of what wild boar are experiencing and, and also uh, how turtles are experiencing this out in the environment, where we know that sediments, for example, are, are trapping these radionuclides, are trapping these elements and isotopes. Uh, they're being accumulated and, and retained within different organisms, plants and animals, in different ways. But because turtles are on the ground, they're digging their burrows, they're, they're breathing in the dust of some of these environments, there seems to be a, a very clear mechanism in the routing of this contamination into their tissues, which is then deposited in that scoot keratin on their shells from things like sediments and soils, and then also the plants that they're consuming that are are growing and living within those same sediments and soils. This is really interesting. You know, I, I want to know if there could be some very old turtles still around, maybe 100 years old, with, with radiation from the first nuclear tests. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's quite possible. And we're really interested in trying to find those types of samples. You know, we were uh, uh, still studying lots of different turtles and, and tortoises and sea turtles out there. Uh, but, you know, Galapagos tortoises, for example, or sea turtles that have a, a very long lived life, it is quite possible that they might be picking up these signals or might have picked up these signals in real time when they experience those events uh, uh, sort of on this global scale. And we focused our work on museum specimens, and that helped us find really s special and unique turtles from, say, the Oak Ridge Reservation that was collected in 1962, but had a sequence back to 1955. You know, it, it it's really quite remarkable. And I think, you know, there's a <laughs> there's still a lot to learn, I think. We've, we've established that we can measure these very small quantities of, of elements and isotopes within turtle shell. And now this really opens up a, a much larger question of, okay, how many different turtles are picking this up from what types of environments and how far back does that record go in time? And, and really that leads us to being able to establish and reconstruct uh, really specific localized and regional records of contamination, either through fallout or through other types of waste in the environment we can pick up those records in these turtles. What surprised you about your findings with turtles? You said, oh my goodness, I never expected that. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, we were surprised in many ways. Uh, in one way, we were surprised that we were able to actually do this because there had been a lot of previous research on turtles, especially uh, sort of measuring the radioactivity in turtles as an entire animal. So we were really surprised that, say, you take a green sea turtle from Inuitok in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. You know, it's collected 20 years after testing ends, and yet the analysis of its shell scoot keratin is picking up a very distinct uranium isotopic ratio that is telling us something about the testing that occurred, you know, roughly 20 years prior to when that turtle died and, and was collected. So we were really surprised at the the specific isotopes that were still present in these shells, even though they're in such small quantities, that they were able to accurately tell us something about that nuclear event in the landscape. And it, it was very closely tied. And, and really, it, uh, you know, it, it retained that information and was able to tell that story about what we've known about these nuclear legacies throughout the world. 
George, uh, a study from a few years ago found that snakes around Fukushima carry radiation in their bodies. And of course, Chernobyl's wolves are a famous example. How is your study similar or different from those? I, I don't want to bore you with my boar study too much. So if there's so many... <laughs> oh, you got that in. You had to get that in. <laughs> You're on the right show for a pun like that. If, there, if, there's so, if there's so many interesting uh, animals out there. So I, actually, I would like to add fish at some point to this, uh, to this collection. So I love fishing. So that would be, would be interesting. So, um, of course, our, our study is in line with, with all those previous studies that uh, shows the accumulation of, of a radioactive material in some organism. Um, what we can add now is like a, a different dimension by using these, this isotopic fingerprint the the ratio of the two isotopes that we have studied, the cesium-135 and the 137, um, we can now expand our knowledge and we can we can show mixing effects. And um, we can also show the, the buildup of, of the accumulation. So that is kind of a, like a snowball effect. And uh, some animals are, are more sensitive in a way uh, than than others, and they are more prone to accumulation. And um, the boar certainly one one of those certainly. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We're talking about how scientists can study radiation through wildlife. Let's let's look at the big picture. What do studies like this tell us about the environmental and health effects of nuclear weapons, George? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't come as a surprise that that the fallout from from nuclear weapons explosions from the nineteen fifties and sixties that that started to to become worrisome in a way. It's not a surprise that President Kennedy and and uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, negotiated the Partial Test Ban Treaty that was opened for signature in nineteen sixty three, that banned all atmospheric nuclear explosions, and that was, in my understanding, was pretty much an emergency break because the, the Northern Hemisphere got contaminated pretty severely with the nuclear weapons fallout. So I don't know the numbers for the cesium, but uh, for plutonium, I think the number is when you, when you go into your backyard and you, you grab a handful of dirt, uh, you're also holding one billion atoms of plutonium in your hands. That is a result. Uh, from the fallout in the 1950s. Everybody? Everybody's uh, backyard in, in on the whole Northern Hemisphere. Could not be too remote from anywhere, everywhere. It's global fallout. So... That is a, that's a sobering image I'm having. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the onset of the Anthropocene. Uh, that's when, when humankind started to, to shape nature as a whole. Wow, Seiler, the U.S. has a long nuclear legacy. What can studies like yours tell us about this? Yeah, our work studying these turtles has really, you know, it, it, it's highlighted to us the ability to use certain types of animals in the environment to reconstruct something about these uh, these events in the environment. You know, something, uh, and, and I think George is speaking to this too, the the capability today, the sensitivity of our instrumentation in order to be able to even measure these isotopes and understand the mixing and the routing of those isotopes in the environment, that really allows us now to, 
take a step back and really look back in time, try and find some of these animals or other organisms that are growing these sequential tissues similar to a tree ring or uh, like George mentioned, a, a, a lake sediment core, even an ice core, something like that, and be able to actually measure those radionuclides from human events and understand, okay, this is what a specific record looks like from this location. And I think, you know, for turtles and tortoises and sea turtles, there's something even more broadly relevant and important about their ability to retain this type of environmental information in their scoop tissue in a sequential way. And that is really important because as we need to find ways to study and understand, say, regional and localized effects of climate change, for example, there's a lot of isotopic and elemental information that's embedded within those sequential scoot layers. And I think that if we focus our, our research back onto the environment and trying to understand these animals and organisms, we can really reconstruct something about our human past and that anthropogenic impact in the environment on those landscapes and, and help better understand how we can essentially mitigate and, and prepare for, for the future. Fascinating stuff. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. Siler Conrad, archaeologist at Pacific Northwest National Lab in Richland, Washington. Dr. George Steinhauser, professor of applied radiochemistry at the Vienna University of Technology in Austria.